Last week I, I picked a poem to begin this talk, and uh, it turned out to be pretty appropriate. Uh, the name of the poem is, a call, is called Afraid So. <laughs> <clears throat> so it goes like this. It's like, Afraid So would be the refer- refrain for each line that, I'd, that I'm going to say. Now, I don't want you to say it in, you know, just in your mind. This is by uh, Jean-Marie Beaumont. Afraid so. Is it starting to rain? (laughs) Did the check bounce? Are we out of coffee? Is this going to hurt? Could you lose your job? Did the glass break? Was the baggage lost? Will this go on my record? Is the traffic heavy? Do I have to remove my clothes? Will it leave a scar? Must you go? Will this be in the papers? Is my time up already? Is the bone broken? Will I have to put him to sleep? Was the car totaled? Am I responsible for these charges? Are you contagious? Will we have to wait long? Is the runway icy? Could this cause side effects? Is the wound infected? Are we lost? And the last one, can it get any worse? So especially tonight, you know what she's talking about. The next bruises and stress that, of just being alive. She's talking about that most of the conditions in our lives are not in our control. I mean, that's the way creation is set up. So, having the capacity to cultivate inner peace and tranquility can be a great support under these conditions and all the conditions of our lives. Most of them we can't control. Now, ease and tranquility is the foundation that a spiritual practice is built upon. It's a a foundation that supports a cascade of deeper understandings, insight, wisdom. It supports a fuller opening of the heart, increasing love, compassion. So tonight we're going to consider tranquility. And yes, I know for some of you, You know, ease and tranquility are the farthest thing from your experience today. You know, you might have had a day like Tara mentioned last night, a multiple hindrance day, where you somehow perfected the ability to have all the hindrances at once. That you're wanting this or that, you're not wanting this or that, you're restless and sleepy at the same time, and you're doubting everything. Yourself, the teachers, the teachings, the Buddha, the whole deal. Uh, But despite these challenging energies, they come and go like everything else that's impermanent in this creation. And despite most of the conditions being out of your control, something in you intuits and has brought you here. Something in you intuits that spending time and energy cultivating inner peace and tranquility is time well spent, a worthwhile expenditure of your energy. It's my personal experience in my own, my own practice and spiritual work over the years and in my teaching that for a spiritual practice to be transformative, truly transformative, 
this cultivation of inner peace and tranquility is a necessity. Uh, it's that simple. And, and if you want to extrapolate it, um, it's the bedrock for a sane world. The human mind knows how to create conflict. I, all you have to do is read a history book, look at the newspapers. But it can also create peace. That same human mind has the capacity to create peace. And to find peace and tranquility in the world, we've got to first find peace and tranquility in ourselves and build that building block, that building block, which is the, the primary building block for a family, for a community, for a nation, for a world. And the Buddha highlights this, this capacity to cultivate tranquility all through his teachings and the discourses and the various meditations that, that, that he taught. Um, it's prominent, for example, it's prominent in the seven factors of enlightenment. Now the seven factors of enlightenment are when they are fully mature in a practitioner pretty much guarantee a really low level of suffering a great capacity for compassion and joy. The mind is stable, clear. So in the seven factors, and I'm just going to briefly kind of go over these, there's three arousing factors and three settling factors, factors that incline the mind towards calm, tranquility. And then there are the seventh, is mindfulness, which is the balancing factor, which really supports all of these. So uh, the, the arousing factors, um, Dhamma Vikaya is the Pali word, and that means investigation. That's an arousing factor. Virya, Pali word, that's energy, arousing. And Piti in Pali, which translated rapture or joy. Okay, so those are the arousing factors. The settling factors, pasadi is the Pali word, and it gets translated often as calm, but you'll also see it translated as ecstasy. Samadhi, which often is translated as concentration, which I'm going to argue against later in the talk, is really the coming together of a whole basket of wholesome mental factors. And then upekka, which is equanimity, is basically the balanced capacity to just accept life as it is with some modicum of grace, without struggle, without resistance. So those three factors, you'll, also, you'll, you'll often see them kind of bundled up and referred to as tranquility. And that's what we're going to kind of aim at tonight. So all these seven factors actually complement one another, support one another, interpenetrate one another. And I thought maybe we'd start off with a, um, a little reflection and see if we could elicit how they, how they work together. So just make yourself comfortable and close your eyes, take a breath or two. Just settle in. And I'm going to take you on a visualization to a day that's a little different than today. It's a summer day and you are in your garden that you have planted and maintained. It is full with flowers, vegetables, everything's flowering. And as you gaze around, mindfulness brightens in you. You're able to let go of the future, let go of the past, feel 
the gentle, warm breeze. Feel the warmth of the sun on your face. Smell the beautiful smells intermingling the various flowers. The sounds of the leaves rustling in nearby trees the sounds of all the plants in the garden brushing against one another. And then your attention lights upon the sound of honeybees. And you notice that they're everywhere, working away steadily, calmly working. Your attention goes to those little creatures that are pollinating your garden, pollinating everything else. You become interested. You look closely into a large peony and this bee is moving from one part of the flower to another. You're noticing the colors. She or he has that kind of pale yellow and a little brown, a little bit fuzzy. And you notice on the legs of this bee that there are globules of pollen that are accumulating kind of like saddlebags. And as he or she lifts from one place to another, she's so loaded that a little bit wobbly, putting out a lot of energy, very careful in their movements from one to another. And so you, experiencing all this with a fair amount of interest now, the senses are open. And as you're investigating, being with these amazing little creatures, you notice that there's even a rise in energy, a kind of rapt interest. A rapt interest is developing. Senses even opening a little wider. And as you watch and feel into this miracle of creation, there becomes noticeable to you an uplifting feeling of awe, appreciation, and joy. There's a beautiful, smooth energy now you're not lost in future planning or worrying or rehashing stuff from the past or fantasizing. You are right there, senses open, connected, resting that attention wide open in the present, not troubled or agitated in any way. You now have a peaceful, tranquil feeling that has arisen in this heart-mind-body. You're just resting in the midst of this experience. The sounds, the movement, the amazement, the mystery of all this. The interest begets energy. The energy begets physical and mental happiness, which begets this peaceful, tranquil feeling, the mind and heart resting easily on this experience. Our little insect friends at work You've noticed that kind of arising of a sweet balance of calm and alertness. All flavored with friendliness, compassion, appreciation, and awe to this miracle of which we are a part.
And so come out of your garden for now. Open your eyes. And maybe you experience some interaction of those factors, maybe not. <clears throat> but in situations like that, when we are awake and mindful, those factors all do play out together. And I want to emphasize play. There is a playful lightness in the arising of, those, of all those factors. I mean, it's not a grim struggle. There's a natural unfolding. And it all is initiated and supported by our kindly mindfulness. Now, the way I describe those, they kind of sound like they're linear. They come one after the other, but they really don't. They all support each other and interpenetrate in, a, in, in many ways. I mean, you can, you can look at tranquility as a settling. This is your mind on stress. Got some Virginia red clay in here. And there's intense stress here. Stress is about relationship, job, economics, health. Some lesser stresses. You know, car repairs, bills to pay, storm damage. And then we've got even some more little agitation that we like to add because we like it. Like cable TV, <laughs> iPhones, iPads, all these things that kind of stir us up. So, like your mind, I'm going to put this on the altar later, we can watch it settle and hopefully your mind will, you know, mimic this, this settling. But that's really what, what we're doing. And there's a, there's a Tibetan saying, Chumanyak nadang, semacho nadi, meaning water, if you don't stir it, will become clear. The mind left unaltered will find its own natural peace. It'll take a while. Over the last dozen years or so, I've spent a lot of time, uh, retreat time, intensive retreat time, exploring a number of techniques designed to elicit and cultivate and gender deep states of calm. I went through my calendars and, and tried to look and see and add up the months. I couldn't, I didn't have all the records, but somewhere between 14 and 18 months of playing in this realm. I find it very interesting. And the more I teach, the more important I think it is in, in cultivating. So I can't encourage you enough. Um, now the language varies in description of these of these tranquil states. You'll hear jhana met, uh, mentioned, meditative absorptions, uh, uh, shamatha, samadhi, concentration. They're all, they're all used. And we could, if we wanted to, kind of parse out what people claim the differences are between, but for, in terms of the practicality of instruction, it's really not that important. And if we just, if you just, uh, we can suffice it to say that they all are aiming at uh, a calm, balanced, tranquil heart-mind of varying degrees. So when you s you'll see all these different definitions, I wouldn't worry too much about them or, s or sweat them. Now, in a tranquil mind, a collected tranquil mind, you'll find these kind of five larger categories. Now, I'm just going to run them down pretty quickly. Uh, vitaka is the Pali word, and that's the capacity to aim or direct your attention to a per any particular perception. It's an applied attention. It's a directed movement of the mind, an aiming of attention. It's like hitting a baseball, hitting a tennis ball, or shining a flashlight in the dark. In, in terms of meditation, it's, it's a precise turning of our attention, uh, say, to the breath, if we're using that, or sensations or sound, or whatever object of meditation is. 
it's it's a connecting with our object. It's not just kind of waving our attention around. There must be a connection, the striker and the bell. In terms of a, the breath as an example, you know, in meditation, it's that, that initial finding and connection with the breath. You know, sometimes like, oh, where, where's my, you know, we can find it. That's Vitaka. Vitaka, last night Tara was talking about the challenging energies. and Vitaka has the capacity to counteract sleepiness and dullness. I mean, it's logical that it, that it does this. When you, when you make a vivid connection, uh, there's no room for dullness, boredom, sleepiness, sluggishness to take hold. Vitaka has that kind of... Um, wakeful quality and it's refreshing when we make that connection. Now the second aspect of uh, a collected deep tranquil state is vichara, kind of the sister of vitaka. We make the connection and then uh, vichara uh, is the sustaining of that connection. We kind of stay with it. It's a quality of mind that kind of ranges over whatever our object is, exploring parts of the breath, etc., noticing different things. But the important aspect is that it, it's, it's endeavoring to stay continually um, with the object. It's like the sustain on this. So if we're using the breath, it's like endeavoring to maintain a connection to that breath all the way through the cycle, the full inhale and exhale. Uh, Vichara holds the attention where you want it, allowing the heart-mind to, to have a more and more intimate experience with whatever is happening. And it has the capacity to dispel doubt. You know, when you're sustaining awareness long enough to start developing an intimate relationship with it, there's, there's, no, there's no opportunity during that interested connection for confusion or uncertainty to, to arise. You know, the mind is not clouded. We're there. So we have Vitaka is the initial connection. Vichara is that sustained connection. And as you might have noticed, and maybe some of you have had some moments today, when you're able to make that connection, sustain it, um, there's a feeling of lightness and pleasure that can arise out of that. Uh, it, and it arises naturally when Vitaka and Vichara are kind of activated. The mind becomes clear, bright, alert. The body kind of wakes up, becomes invigorated. Now this is piti, the third aspect of this, these states of tranquility, this collected tranquil mind. And piti gets translated in various ways also. Uh, rapturous interest, joyful interest, just plain joy, enthusiasm, zest, delight, um, happiness, bliss. And the experience of piti, when it arises, uh, can, can range from just the kind of subtle arising of pleasantness in an in a internal smile, all the way to this kind of really intense, pulsating, rapturous feeling that makes any kind of sexual orgasm pale. So there's a, there's a range. But it is pervasive when it's, in a, when it's active. It's like head to toe. Now, as you can imagine, when piti arises, it is an antidote for any aversion. When you're drenched in joy like that, it's kind of difficult to generate ill will, anger, hatred, etc. It's just not available. Fear's not available. None of that is available. You're, you're basically, in a way, you could say you're kind of naturally tranquilized temporarily. 
I mean, what's not to like about that? And there's more. The fourth aspect is called sukha. Um, and, it's, and, it also, and it arises with PT. Some people say you can tell the difference. Some people say no way. They just kind of arise together. And it's usually uh, translated as happiness, peace, pleasure, ease, joy, contentment. Uh, it does kind of differ from PT in several ways. It's, it's less energetic. It's a little quieter, smoother. Um, if you talk to meditators that have been working in tranquility for a while, um, th they'll describe it as really gratifying but toned down a little bit. More of a kind of mental, mental happiness. So everything feels great when PT and Sukha are activated. Uh, your whole mental field is, is filled with a, with a happiness and a contentment. And when Sukha is strong, uh, you'll know that it's strong. It's like if the bell rings during a sitting and you have no interest in getting up. It's like what could be more interesting and pleasant and satisfying than just sitting here. Not food, not tea, not anything. That's PT and Sukha when they're activated. It's very sweet. Now, as everything comes together like this, uh, you have this sustained contact. It's all lubricated with this joy and interest. Uh, the mind gathers itself really easily on, on the object. And, and that's called, that's the fifth factor. It's called ikagata. Attention is now pretty disturbance-free, really connected with the object. And at this point, the hindrance ener energies, all of them, are pretty relaxed. There's no wanting in the mind. There's a feeling of certainty, stability, clarity. And at that point, attention is undifferentiated from the object. I mean, there's a, this kind of union that happens. And the sense of boundaries between yourself and your object are getting very porous, blurred, and sometimes completely gone. It's very relaxing. Mind is unified. So and as this continues, just the tranquility deepens and deepens. And some people would say, well, then it enters this, this jhana state. And there's a debate on what jhana is and what jhana isn't. And really, all that matters is that as we cultivate and find the inner peace and tranquility, we get lots of benefits. We don't have to worry about what it's called or what one teacher calls it or another calls it. So... I want to drill a little, just a little deeper into what's happening when the mind gets collected like this. And I know for some of you, it's like, what is he talking about? My mind never relaxes like that. It's just all over the place. But I think it's important that, yes, we pay attention step by step, our mindfulness, we're working with what is, but also to know a larger vision of what's possible may serve in some way. So there's a, there's a commentary on the Buddha's discourses called The Path of Purification, written by a fellow named Buddha Gosa about 900 years after the Buddha died. In the fifth century, he wrote it. Uh, and he describes samadhi, this deep, tranquil state, and he identifies 34 wholesome mental factors that simultaneously arrive when we have this feeling of deep tranquility, including the five that I just mentioned. And I'm not going to bore you with all of them, uh, but I want to hear some of them. I want you to hear some of them so you get a sense of uh, how special and wonderful this state can be. And, and it's not just concentration. That word even... It makes people strive. A lot of people strive and tightens them down. That's not what it's about. Concentration, um, if you think of a cat burglar, somebody who's really skilled at scaling you know, to the second story, jiggering a lock, 
sneaking in, knowing where your valuables are, getting out while you're sleeping, that person has really great concentration. They do not have samadhi in the classic sense. They have concentration. So that word is not a good translation. Here's, here's what samadhi holds within it. I want you to just kind of, sh- kind of shut your eyes, relax, and I'll read some of these. And see if you can sense into the words and get a flavor for what that might feel like inside. Just a whiff. See if you can get a whiff of that flavor. So there's energy or effort, which is a very smooth endeavoring, supporting a calm countenance, steadfastness. There's a wholesome desire. There is desire, but it's wholesome. There's faith. The nature of a kind of a firm faith in the training. There's also mindfulness, a connecting with our subject, with our object, and not forgetting it. There's conscience, having the flavor of conscientious scruples about any misconduct. And there's even what classically is called moral shame. I don't like to use that word, but it's a slight dread about committing any misconduct. We just don't want to go there. There's non-greed, non-attachment in all its forms, no clinging or grasping. There's non-hatred, non-harshness of mind. There's a softness, a loving friendliness. There's equanimity, uh, uh, an evenness described as the nature not to go to either extreme. There's a, there's a lightness and agility of heart-mind. There's flexibility and elasticity of heart-mind. There's adaptability and wieldiness or wildiness of heart-mind. And here's what I like. It's called proficiency of wholesome deeds. And what that is, is an inclination in the heart and mind, an inclination to charity, to generosity. And there's one called a rectitude of mind. And that's a mind not swerving toward any pretense or deceit. So I think you get the picture. You know, when Buddha Gosa was kind of naming these out, and he learned this from a lot of meditation teachers who, um, it was passed down over the years. He took 19 of these and he bundled them up and he, he called them the beautiful universals, these wholesome qualities, and they arise together. Uh, when I studied with uh, Paok Sayadaw, who was the legendary Burmese um, samadhi master in teaching these tranquilities, I studied with him two months one year and then five months the next, or a couple years later, it's actually four months he was there, but I knew how rigorous it was going to be, so I went a month early so I could warm up for him. But he had us, um, when he deemed that our ability to collect the mind was strong enough, he had us then spend time kind of isolating each one of those in the mind and getting really familiar with each one. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, But in naming these, I just want to point out that there is this beautiful dance of these factors that come into being together when the mind is tranquil. We don't have to know what these all are, but that's, that's what's happening. A quiet mind is a beautiful mind. A mind settled in, supple, in such a way is incapable of doing harm. Cannot do. It's always inclining toward compassion and love. 
Yeah. Tar talked a little bit about last night about th some of the some of the myth and the story of the Buddha's practice. And um, there's one story that 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 particularly speaks to the role of tranquility. Um, when he first became a wandering ascetic, he and some of his buddies uh, were doing these really intense practices. And they're described, you know, they would kind of tie and bind themselves into a certain position and stay there awake for days at a time. They would not s sleep. They would, um, um, in, an in an attempt to kind of subdue desires and the senses of the body, uh, in service of awakening, they would do things like, okay, day one, we're going to eat 30 grains of rice. Day two, 29. Day three, 28, 27, you know, all the way through a month. And then bring it up to 30 again. And then back to zero, you know. So this is the way he was practicing with such, you know, fervor and striving. He basically practiced, practiced himself to within to within an inch of his own death. And as his life force was dimming out, and they said that if you looked at him straight on, that looking at his, his stomach area, you could see his backbone from all of, all of this really intense pride. And there was a group of them doing this together. That as his life force was dimming, he had this image. He kind of flashed back to when he was a child, 10, 11, 12 years old. And it happened to be the, the, uh, the day of the spring fertility rites that the people in the village would participate in. It was a ceremony and a celebration, and his, his father was the, the head of the clan. So it was expected that everybody in his family would be all decked out and right there, and they'd be all smiling. Kind of a political event, but a really nice ceremony. Well, Siddhartha at the time was not the Buddha at that point, had kind of drifted off. He was a different child. So he, he kind of drifted off and he went in this grove of trees and he sat down under this rose apple tree and really collected, relaxed. He got very calm. The body became completely tranquilized. The mind was clear. There was joy in his heart. Thoughts slowed down, mostly disappeared. And he rested in this deep tranquility while the rest of the village was kind of doing their thing. They let him, they let him be. Siddhartha was on his own kind of path even then. So the Buddha, while he was doing all these ascetic practices, he reflected on this. And it dawned on him that, that maybe he was a little off course, you know? Just a little. And that sure, yes, energy and effort is needed. That's not it. But he'd gone a bit overboard. I mean, pushing the mind and body like he was pushing it to the breaking point was not the answer. That an alert, joyful, tranquil repose could be called like the middle way, the middle path. He had discovered that as a child, fell into it naturally. Although they say all his previous lifetimes he'd been practicing and practicing and practicing. Um, but that that was the path, a sensible path to liberation. And as the story goes, soon thereafter, having that realization, a um, milkmaid walked by and she offered him some sustenance. He didn't look too good. And so she offered him this mix of milk and rice and he took it in and he began to eat and nurture himself back to full health. And he changed his practice at that point. Um, and his approach became one with tranquility at the base, at the foundation. And it was a practice then that incorporated self-care, not self-mortification. And that's what we're endeavoring to practice today.
I want to read you something from the discourses that describes uh, what it might, what it's, what it's like, what the possibilities are. And this is a description of the first uh, jhana out of the discourses. There's a case where a monk, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from with, withdrawal, accompanied by direct thought and evaluation. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Withdrawal, just our practice, taking time and in silence. Then it goes on and it gives this metaphor which I like gives you an insight into the times, how soap was made. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated, within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the monk permeates, suffuses, and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Now, that's not, not too shabby, and that really disabuses anyone who thinks, well, Buddhism is just this kind of grim kind of exploration of suffering. This is really a path to happiness. It's a deep happiness and it's not dependent on conditions. So that's a description of that first, of the first jhana. The second jhana, first jhana is a lot of physical kind of rapture. Second jhana is uh, a kind of mental happiness. Third jhana, it kind of morphs into a deep, deep contentment. The mental happiness kind of backs off, the contentment comes up. The fourth jhana, the, the contentment kind of backs off and a deep, deep stillness kind of settles in. Thoughts are barely occurring, just wispy, no rooting, and then ultimately no thoughts for a while. So these states of tranquility occur when the hindrances r relax for us. The mind organically moves towards these natural states. You know, when we're, when we practice a lot, and I hear it from a lot of people, um, even a couple of people today in, in the group talking about, well, I'm, I kind of like to go after the dark stuff and work with that. I'm kind of looking for these issues, kind of searching for maybe this neurosis or that neurosis. I'm going to fix it. I mean, that's, that's our kind of Western MO. We're going to kind of fix things. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. But there can be some balance. And um, I want to I wanna, uh, share with you a little reflection, a little, a little meditation that um, is designed to engender tranquility. So if you want to take a position... Or maybe you want to stand up for 10 seconds, just stretch and then, this will be a short meditation, very short. Move your body the way it wants to be moved. And then settle back in when you're ready. So take some full breaths, two or three. Allow the breath to settle. 
Breathing in, we calm the body. Breathing out, we calm the mind. Releasing on the exhale. Relaxing any areas that you're able to relax, bringing that soft, kind attention. Softening in the head and the face. And bringing the attention inside the neck and shoulders. Inviting the shoulders to relax down a little bit. And now gently just resting in the breath. Breathing in, breathing out, releasing on the exhale. And now scanning the body and seeing if there is any area of the body that has a pleasant sensation located there. If there's not anything obvious, you might bring a smile into the mind, the eyes, the heart. Put a smile on the lips and see if that elicits a pleasant sensation. And now, leave the breath and bring your attention to the pleasantness of that pleasant sensation. Don't do anything but just leaving your attention on the pleasantness of that pleasant sensation. It often has the tendency to increase automatically. And if the mind moves off, just gently come back, resting in the pleasantness. Sensitizing our nervous system to the pleasantness, 
inviting it if it wishes to spread. Experiencing the pleasantness. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay. So... Maybe there was a taste there, maybe not. But you might want to explore that occasionally. Now, it's important to know that the cultivation of tranquility is not the end game. It's a necessary foundation for the discovery of the deepest insights. And although it can feel wonderful, it is not awakening. And the Buddha also found this out in his, in his practice. He went to two masters. The first master trained him in basically the first seven jhanas the fifth jhana, the, sp- the sphere of infinite spaciousness, the sixth jhana, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the seventh jhana, the sphere of no-thingness. So he became, and the master said to him, now you know all there is to know. This is bliss, this is all there is. And the Buddha said to him, oh, wait a minute, there is suffering. What is the story about suffering? Is there an end of suffering? And the master said, well, this is all I know. And the Buddha thanked him and went on. Went to the next master, who knew another level of absorption, the eighth jhana, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Very, very subtle. And again, the master said, well, this is, this is the end. This is all there is. You create this bliss. And the Buddha said, no, you know, what, a, what about the nature of suffering and the end of suffering? Where is that in here? These are temporary states of mental factors arising and they dissolve. But what they did, those states of tranquility, they weren't the answer. They are a useful tool in, in developing and cultivating a mind that can stay where we ask it to stay to penetrate deeply. And of course, you know, a tranquil state, they're going to find out more and more things about it. I wouldn't be surprised if it aids in depression, if it aids in ADHD, if it aids in anxiety, if it, you know, all these possibilities are there that are being measured. You know, useful things. But it is not enlightenment. It's just a tool. There's a tendency for practitioners to like, oh, this is what I want. Of course, we all do. We all get hooked on this for a while. Uh, But in in a mature practice, we learn to just, oh, okay, these factors come up. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? And then they fall apart, just like everything else in nature, coming, going, coming, going. But it does help create and cultivate a mind that has the capacity to penetrate. And this is what's said in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, one, of the, the, um, one of the books and discourses of the Buddha, about descriptions of the, of the Buddha's mind on his night of enlightenment and what he did with that mind. And that's what we're charged to do. It says this, when his mind was in samadhi, 
purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he, re- he directed it to the true knowledges. He directed it towards the true knowledges. It's just not about creating bliss. He took that mind. He aimed it toward what is suffering? What is the cause of suffering? What is the cessation of suffering? What is the path out of suffering? What is impermanence? What is the nature of self? A mind like that can penetrate into those larger questions. And when you sit here and you do your practice, you, you, may, you might not be aware of it, but you're exercising the Four Noble Truths every time that you recognize that you've got all your claws deeply into something, you're entangled, you're totally identified, you wake up, you recognize this, you're, this is suffering. You're tangled. Ah, this is suffering. And what, what is the cause of suffering? This kind of tangle, this gripping, this clinging. And what is the release of suffering? Just the letting go. We can do that. We do that. You've been doing it. And then we re-relax. And then we get tangled again. And we suffer some. And then we recognize, oh, and we let go. We let it be. So we're experiencing suffering and the end of suffering each time we do that. We're directly experiencing the Four Noble Truths as the Buddha taught it. It's kind of amazing, this simple meditation that we do. And over and over, we start to get the hang of it. Ah, clinging causes suffering. Oh, and I can learn ways to just let be, let go. It's a real self-compassion, you know, this practice. And if you learn to let go just a little bit, you'll get a, a little bit of reduction in suffering. And if you let go a whole lot, you'll get a whole lot of reduction in suffering. So tonight we explored tranquility. And uh, yeah, on the, on the one level, it will help us reduce stress and anxiety, which is great, worth the price of admission right there. But there's much more potential. And we may have periods where we are just swamped with these challenging energies, difficult emotions, one after another after another. Tranquility is not available. So we bring what kindly mindfulness and equanimity and care to that experience. Whatever we can muster, we bring it to those energies. We attend to them and we befriend them. And through that, we build the capacity to be with the stuff of life, these conditions that we can't control. We can learn ways uh, uh, to wake up and to open our hearts no matter what the conditions are. We can use whatever unfolds to wake up. And in those times, whenever it may happen, when the conditions are right, when these challenging energies relax and the mind is clear, and the heart is completely open. All manner of wonderment and pleasure are revealed. Great wisdom and love do this exquisite dance. So thank you for your attention. And we will, let's say 20 minutes or so, about five after, 10 after, let's 10 after. We'll come back here and uh, practice.
practice together, maybe chant together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.